Welcome to episode 87 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Laura Colbert. In today's interview, we talk about what it was like to deploy to the Iraq War in the early stages of war. Laura was in the first wave of the invasion after the Marines. She talked about the whole experience in her book, Sirens, How to Pee Standing Up, that is based on a journal she kept while deploying overseas. In this interview, we covered Laura joining the National Guard in March of 2001 and having to stop going to college when she deployed to Iraq and coming home and suffering from PTSD. This is a really deep interview on what it's like to deploy to Iraq, and I'm really thankful for Laura for taking time to share her story. So let's get started. You're listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm Amanda Huffman. I'm an Air Force veteran, author of Women of the Military, and a collaborative author of Brave Women, Strong Faith. I am also a military spouse and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast as a place to share stories of military women past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. I'm excited for you to be here. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. So let's dive in with why did you decide to join the military? Well, I was of my freshman year of college and um, I had saved up enough money for scholarships and my first year of college, but then thought that my parents are going to help me pay for the subsequent years. And I have a twin brother. So that was kind of the deal for both of us. And halfway through our freshman year, they realized that they couldn't afford to do that. So I started looking for an alternative way to pay for college. And I really did not want to have a lot of college debt. And I love um, adventure. I, I was in crew my freshman year. I rode for the UW-Madison team. And I thought, you know, I love adventure. I could totally stay in shape with, with the National Guard. And so that's the route I took. It was March of 01, which was six months before September 11th. So it was a peacekeeping time. And one of my good friends, do it. What's going to happen in the next six years? <laughs> yeah. So I was excited for the opportunity to possibly do some peacekeeping missions and just serve our country. Yeah, I think that's important to talk about because you joined in March of 2001 before the country was mm-hmm. at war and like not it wasn't very long. Did you go to basic in March of 2001? I was in college. So I did what I did the split option. And I went to basic training uh, the summer of 01. And then September 11th happened. And then uh, I got, went to AIT for military police training. That's the following summer and then got deployed. Well, no, I got deployed uh, my junior year in March of my junior year. So you had the option because you were going to school to, did you start drilling in March and then went to basic? Yeah, I didn't really actually drill a whole lot before basic. I was supposed to go to this random weekend long welcome to the military boot camp type of thing in Wisconsin. And I went to the wrong truck stop. <laughs> So I missed the ride and got a free weekend out of it. So I got to stay back at, at college and have fun. So yeah, I showed up basic training, not knowing a whole lot about the military, which was a little scary, but we made it through. So you drilled the whole next year and then you went to your AIT, which is like the job training for your job. Yep. And then 
you started going back to school and that's when you guys found out you were deploying to Iraq. Yep. So we, as soon as I got back from AIT, we really started to train as though we were going to be demobbed. And come February, actually, I think it was end of January, I got the call that said, we're most likely getting deployed. And then two weeks later on February 14th, Valentine's Day, I got the, yep, you're getting deployed. So clean up all your stuff and let's go. So how does it work for someone who's in the National Guard? Are you at the will of the army. And when they say it's time to go, you're like, all right. Yeah, I had to drop out of all of my classes. There's only one professor that said that he'd give me an incomplete and I could finish it when I get back, which is essentially the same thing as dropping out. Because the National Guard honors where you're at in your life, anybody who has a job can get that same job or at least the same pay type of job. And then um, you can resume your your schooling if that's which, if that's where you're at, which was my case. So I actually had to pay rent out throughout the rest of the year, but you get a stipend for that too when you get deployed. And yeah, I moved out and kept paying rent for my roommates that I was living with. And then for the rest, like I said, for the duration of the, the lease and then, yeah, moved everything to my parents' house and went to war. That's crazy. I think people don't understand like maybe that how many people deploy with the National Guard. I deployed with National Guard troops and like you have a normal job. It's not like, I mean, active duty, your job is to be in the military. So you just do whatever they say. But National Guard and reserves kind of have a very different relationship between like one week in a month, two weeks a year. And then all of a sudden, no, right. no, this is what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very different. And we joked a lot that, you know, we're the National Guard. So shouldn't we stay national instead of international? But we ended up going to Baghdad, Iraq. So we were very international. Let's talk a little bit about your experience. And I want to mention that you wrote a book about your experience. Yeah. So if people want mm-hmm. to read more, because it's over 200 pages. So we're only going to we're going to do like the 30,000 <laughs> foot level. I'll have the link in the show notes so that people can order it. I'll let you introduce it. Sure. So it's called Sirens, How to Pee Standing Up, uh, an alarming memoir of combat and coming back home. It was an interesting endeavor uh, writing this book. What I did was I journaled the entire time I was deployed. So every day, or if I missed a day, I'd try and go back and recap what happened. I wrote exactly what happened. And it is very much in military jargon. And there's a lot of swear words in my journal. And it's the rawness of what war was like. So I brought that home and I put that into digital format and made it very civilian friendly. And there's still it's still not totally civilian friendly. Obviously, there's lots of acronyms in it. And then took out some of the redundancies and the boring stories and really explained the more in depth ones or the more intriguing stories. We we were deployed for 16 months. So it was a lot of when we first got there, it's it was almost as though we were liberating the Iraqis and they they loved having us there. And within six months it went to to an occupation where they started throwing rocks at us and giving the thumbs down and say saying bad America to us. And and that's when the IEDs started happening and getting rocketed and mortared every night in our compounds and, and it in the war just really became an extremely scary place to be compared to when we started there. So um, it has two titles kind of because my editor didn't really like how to pee standing up. She didn't like the word pee. And that was my running title since I started this project. And so we 
compromise by using both of them, which is really confusing to readers. But it, I think that in the end, if you read it closely enough, you can see the sirens aspects in there. It's it's multifaceted. It means, you know, the sirens coming out of the ocean. And because when you're deployed, you're like queen for a year, not only among the military men, but you should have seen the way the Iraqis treated us because they're so used to their very fully covered women who don't leave their homes who are very submissive in nature. Well, I don't know what they're like in the house, but they're, they're submissive in public. And um, and here we were, these like Hollywood type women, you know, fighting a war. So they were super intrigued there. And then also we were military police. So there's some connotations with the sirens there. And then I did suffer a lot of post-traumatic stress when I got home. So I I made the, the simile of like sirens going off in my head. But How to Peace Standing Up is a really funny title. And I did indeed learn how to peace standing up because we were in an urban fighting environment. And and I had to learn how to pee using a funnel. Yep, I read about that. <laughs> hey guys, I want to tell you about a workbook that I just finished reading and has really helped me with my business. If you're someone who's starting a business or has thought about starting a business, you need to check out the Ministry to Business Guide on sale this summer. If you've thought, I want to monetize my writing, but I don't know how to do it. Or if you have started speaking and you keep getting paid with Starbucks gift cards or warm hugs, this guide will help you start Start making an income, building your audience, and learning the tips and tricks of how to grow your audience. If this sounds like something that you need to help your business, check out my affiliate link in the show notes and get your guide today. Now let's get back to the show. I think it was really an interesting time because like you said, when you first got there, the Iraqis were happy and they were like welcoming and then when you guys didn't leave, they quickly changed their tune on like how. And one of the things that is really different between like I was in Afghanistan, so like Afghan culture and Iraqi culture, they're similar but different. But one of the things that you talked a lot about in the book was like how there was like no sense of urgency to like stuff or like they were like, no, he can do it. I'll just sit here. And like we ran into that a lot in Afghanistan where we'd be like, well, you need to like do this now and they were like what tomorrow and so that was one of the things that like I think the cultures of like American culture and the Middle East culture it's really hard because they like our personalities clash so much and we don't even know like that we're doing something to offend them and or that they're doing something to offend us because we're just like so different. Yeah you nailed it on the head and and I also didn't know if it was because a lot of the soldiers or sorry the, the police officers that we were helping to train the Iraqi police officers, they were just civilians off the street who wanted a consistent paycheck. And so I didn't realize, or I didn't know if it was part of that facet where they just didn't know what to do and they were too scared or if it was part of their culture. And another funny story, I, I had my legs crossed and I was, you know, shaking my leg a little bit as it was crossed. And one of the interpreters said, Naylor, you got to stop that. You're showing the bottom of your foot because that's like showing the middle finger or swearing at somebody. You don't, you don't show the bottom of your feet. So yeah, those cultural differences were really, really unique. And then not to get too heavy or too political, but to assume that our democratic principles are going to fit with the Iraqi ideals and give them a democratic government. I, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that a lot of research went into that, but I also feel like it was, it could have gone a lot better had we done something that was a little bit more suited to their cultural needs. Yeah, that's, we were, I'm an engineer is my background. And so we were building like these huge like buildings and everywhere else was mud huts. And so they like had this blueprint that they like had to use because that's what the government and you were like, maybe you should have like drove out here and saw what they had instead of being like, build this 
Yeah, so sometimes where it's like where it works in one place, even like it probably would have worked in the capital city where the like stuff was coming from, but it doesn't work in other parts and like the same thing like, well, this works in America, so let's do it over here. Right. That's one of the hardest parts I think about when you're overseas and like you're trying to implement what your mission is and like you're getting directions from up top and you're like down on the ground and something's missing. Right. You're not... You're not down here, so you don't understand what kind of struggles we're going through. And I think that makes it really difficult for people on the ground. Yeah. And I I talked about that a little bit in the book too. As a military person, you have to follow orders and that's, and that's what you do. And other, other, if you don't do that, it's not like you'll get reprimanded or, you know, a slap on the wrist. You could get fined, you could get dem- demoted and ultimately you could end up at Fort Leavenworth and in, in a prison. It's not like you can just quit and walk away. There were a couple of times when we were put in a pretty tumultuous situation where I knew the end result could be really bad. And had they had the leadership thought it through a little bit more, we would to put ourselves in so much danger, like going down a wrong uh, dead end road. You know, you, we have to come back that way. They can easily set up an ambush or driving around in a circle three times because we don't quite know which way to go. And and then I also mentioned how I was escorting around some new captains through our MP brigade and they literally went to the three most dangerous parts of Baghdad because they wanted to see some action and I was their escort. So that was really frustrating too because I'd already been there for nine months. I already saw my fair share of war. I did not need to be put my life on the line because they wanted to play cowboys, you know? Yeah. One of the things when I was reading it, I was like, when we, I went and do to Afghanistan in 2010 and so it was a very different war like we've been there for so long we had all the routes on where we were going and you didn't have a GPS you're like just driving around trying to figure out where to go and so it was kind of crazy because the, the previous team like when we got there they said this is how you get to here this is how and so we knew exactly where we were gonna go essentially and every and it was so such a small area that we went to that their directions of showing us and there were like five roads because it was like the back so there's like not really a lot to go but it's just interesting how when you're the first ones there and you're setting everything up there's no person to tell you that how to get to different places and you guys went on a lot of different like new missions where you were doing go run over here and do this and so it was a lot of trying to figure it all out yeah i call ourselves the first permanent establishment after the marines came through iraq We lived in a bombed out building that we bombed when we bombed Baghdad. There were still remnants of the bombs in the building. And we only had two walls because the other two were blown out from the explosion. And chunks of marble ceiling were falling down on our beds. You know, we'd hammer it with a broomstick to make sure it was down as far as it could. Or we got as much down as we could so it wouldn't fall on us when we were sleeping. So it was, yeah, there was, it was pretty unsubstantiated. And a lot of Iraqis, I think that's one of the reasons maybe they treated us so well when we first got there because we were an anomaly. We were just this thing that they had this force they had not really encountered a whole lot yeah and one of the things that you guys you guys were working like night shift sometimes and day shift sometimes and you were one of very few females were you the only female in your squad or no actually my platoon was almost half females half male but we were we were the exception to the rule there were two platoons that only had four females and one that had seven but when we were doing the gate guard outside of our compound all the infantry and the special forces who didn't have any women with them would drive past so we were definitely high major or high minority there not not many females except for like I said our platoon which was actually really cool because a lot of the females and I still get together 
and and we you know had that really strong bond that you talk about that happens at war. And cool that you could have so many other women with you because I think we had like seven or eight on our team, but we had like a hundred people. I got deployed with another civil engineer and she was a female and it was nice to have someone to work directly with who was a female and to have that support. And we're still friends to this day. So yeah, absolutely. We, we definitely had each other's backs and <laughs> there was this infantry guy who, again, they came in after we'd been there for nine months and he said to one of our female gunners, you even know how to use that thing? You know, and they had just gotten to war and <laughs> she almost turned that sucker on him. <laughs> yeah, they, they tried to mess with us, but didn't work. A lot of people don't realize like how many women have been fighting the war and like on the front lines from the beginning. You guys were there before <laughs> the infantry and like so many people think the infantry are the ones who are there first. And I think that it's really important to talk about. You talked that you had PTSD. Were there specific incidents that you can like relate back to or was it the whole deployment? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm just going to go back to your front lines comment and then I'll talk post-traumatic stress. You know, I feel like that term is so archaic and what's going on in today's day and age with war because even if we didn't go out into the city of Baghdad, we were still in a very dangerous compound where mortars and rockets were flying in every night. And we thought that we didn't know if we were going to survive. And then after we got extended, we moved into tents. And that's really when I thought I was going to die in my sleep. And, you know, I would come out of the tent and, and seven tents down would be completely annihilated by mortars. And thank God it was empty, you know, or we were walking to Chaha one time and chunks of mortar were, were skidding to our feet after they impacted the ground. I was in the gym right before I went to the gym, I was in a porta potty came out and that porta potty was incinerated by mortars that just hit our compound. And again, the front lines term is so incorrect with the today's day and age with war, because it's not just lining up and moving forward. (laughs) So, and yeah, we were out there before the women were officially allowed on the front lines. And that's kind of why I chose to be a military police officer instead of a mechanic, which I wanted to have that opportunity to go fight if it ever came to that. So going to post-traumatic stress now, it's, you know, it's loud noises. It's when my husband uses the nail gun. It's when somebody slams a door. It's when I'm at a track meet and the gun goes off. It's thunder. Uh, One time, the full moon, I looked at the full moon and it reminded me of doing the night shift at the Baghdad police station and watching the whole lunar cycle happen. And then I saw the moon as a civilian and just broke down. I do think that the scariest part of our deployment was probably the unknown with the mortars. That has left me with the most amount of nightmares. And and not even that they're that bad, but that whenever I dream of war, it is me trying to avoid mortar mortars impacting. And um, you know, through time the post-traumatic stress has gotten better, but I I just had to leave the 4th of July parade this year because the VFW kept shooting off rounds as they walked through the parade and it, and it, you know, it drove me to a really bad place and just random stuff like that that happens in life when you don't really expect it to happen and it does and and so when I know when I'm the one with the nail gun or I'm the one with something that's going to make a loud noise that's better than if somebody else has it. I think that's a good point to talk about PTSD because I can function most of the time with like no and sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm cured. <laughs> and then uh, you have something like I got stuck in traffic and I was taking doxycycline, which is the same drug that I took malaria when I was deployed. 
And I think it was the combination of being stuck, like stuck in traffic and being on doxycycline. And it made me panic. I like had to start moving because it's not safe. And like I was here. So it was like, and this just happened less than six months ago. And I was, it kind of like surprised me because it was like, I've been stuck in traffic before. In that moment, I like couldn't, like I knew where I was and I knew what was going on, but like my body was like ready to react and it just kind of freaked me out how quickly I went like straight back to that experience. And I think what you said, it's like sometimes things don't bother you and then other Mm -hmm. times something that you would think is not as big of a deal as the other thing does, but you don't really have control over it. Right. Like I was driving down one of our you know, two lane roads here in town and there was a piece of garbage on the side of the road and I veered into the other lane because we had to do that due to IEDs in Iraq. And when you're in a big Humvee, everybody gets out of your way. So I was in my little Toyota Corolla thinking that the car coming my way is going to get out of my way. And it was right before we almost impacted that I was realized I was civilian and got back in my lane. It's scary. It is. It's really scary. And I think it's really important to talk about. And for me, it was really hard to read your book because it was so personal and like so many stories and it was it was real life. And I think that it's important to write about and for people to read, but it's not always easy for people to read it because it's it's so true. But I think people need to know these stories and to hear people's experiences so that they can understand what people are going through. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. I had a really good friend of mine tell me that she, her dad went to Vietnam and he can't talk about it. He never does, but he came back a different person. And, um, and after reading my book, she realizes how war can change you and impact you and why maybe he doesn't want to talk about it. And I bring up moral injury as well, which I feel like is, is a new term. And I, and I really do think that that has a lot to do with some of the things that have happened at war. Like, you know, you go over there and, and all of your, all of your civilian morals and values are kind of shoved aside. Like you start to swear, you start to spit, you talk about killing people all the time, you you can murder people, you know, and, and, and then you come home and you try to fit back into your own, your old mold after having this entire mental shift. And I think that's really trying for a lot of people and whether or not you call it post-traumatic stress or moral injury or culture shock, it's all kind of that same, that same idea. It's so true. It's, it's really true. Cause you, your body and your mind just have to like survive and so you do things that you typically wouldn't do and like cussing is a perfect example that like Mm -hmm. it relieves stress and like everybody does it and it's just you would never talk that way but it's just the way (laughs) and just really it's like one thing you can do that relieves stress and you're like well it's not that bad and if you swear over if you don't swear over there you're like this weirdo I want to talk about some of the other struggles that you had overseas, but I know that some of the people on your team died and I wanted to talk about like how that affected you because I think that's a really important topic and not easy to talk about. Yeah. So she was, she was in my company. Her name was Michelle Whitmer and she was 20 years old and it was actually right before we were supposed to go home before we got extended. So we were all thinking, you know, we'll be home in two weeks. We were just going to go help out the police stations because there were threats that the insurgents are going to take them over. So we decided to do 96 hour operations, which is four days in the police stations, 24 seven. I wouldn't have been seven. It would have been 24 <laughs> four. 
Anyway, so one night we came home at two in the morning after being at this really tumultuous station where, again, the mortars were flying in. You could see the tracers just constantly flying through the sky. It was like the 4th of July. The, the fireworks never stopped, but it was tracers. And, you know, with every every round of a tracer, you've got two rounds that aren't seen because, the well, at least the the United States, we put tracers in every, every three rounds. So anyways, it was, it was really, really scary. And, and as we were driving home, we started getting shot at from about 10 story buildings from, and we didn't know where the gunshots were coming from, but it was all over. And you could see the gunners hunch in their, in their turrets a little bit further. And I was the driver and I was actually the lead driver in the convoy. So I gunned it and got us into the green zone, which is where we lived at the time. And we, we came out unscathed. We also had an ID go off behind our convoy too, but again, didn't didn't impact anything. And the following night, because we're in a war zone, we never take the same route home, but we came home around the same time. I think it was like quarter to two. And um, as we're driving in, we hear a lieutenant screaming into the radios that they're taking fire and that somebody just got shot. And it was Michelle and she was one of their gunners. And he gave us the, pay, the play-by-play of, of essentially her dying in the Humvee, like where the blood was coming from and, and her not breathing and pulseless. And yeah, so the next day we found out that she officially didn't make it after they took her to the hospital and we had to do our memorial service there in, you know, the, the bagpipes and the 21 gun salute and, and the whole nine yards there. And then two days later we got extended. So um, it was a lot of horrible things happening all at one time. And, you know, I had to cancel two trips, one to New York and one to DC. And I had to stay, I had to not re-enroll at UW-Madison because I didn't know if I'd be back in time for a fall semester. And, you know, just when you think it couldn't couldn't get any worse, it did. So it was was really, really, really hard. Um, We had a lot of other injuries. We had, I think, a total of 27 Purple Hearts or something like that in our company. I was fortunate enough not to not to have any injuries while I was there. You know, my injury comes in the form of post-traumatic stress, but yeah, I was one of the lucky ones. Yeah. And the timing of death and then being extended when you were Mm -hmm. like that close. I just think about like being two weeks from coming home and then being told I would have to stay. That would be so hard. And I didn't, I didn't realize, well, I didn't even think about like people being over there and like how close to being coming home. My friend's husband was there for 15 months, but he mm-hmm. found out like in month two that it was going to be 15, which is a lot different than like, I mean, it still sucks, but when you're almost home and you're just ready to be done and then to be extended. Yeah. We had this sick joke that we were actually in hell and that was our hell is that they'd keep teasing us about going home and then taking away from us because they said when we got deployed in March, it'd be six months tops. And then every month or so they'd extend a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And when it finally felt tangible in April and we were actually packing stuff up and sending it home, you know, I was like, okay, this is going to happen. And then they extended us again. And then I, you just couldn't believe anything anymore at that point. You just, you never really believed it was going to happen. And then even when we finally, we actually didn't take another full four months, but when we started driving south in July, we were getting jerked around even then because we were supposed to leave at 1400 and then we stayed another night and then we were supposed to leave at 0800 and then we didn't leave, you know, it was just like back and forth until finally we got in the Humvees and drove south. But it was, yeah, it was crazy town. You just had no, no faith and what anybody said anymore yeah that's just makes it's an added layer of like oh, of what you're already going through and then just 
making it harder to trust leadership, making it harder to stay motivated because you're like, whatever, yeah. we're just going to be here forever and we never are going to leave. And that's, yeah. I think that's one of the things people may not understand about the military is you don't have a say. Like if they say you're going to stay two months longer, then you stay two months longer. Like it's not like, wait, I didn't sign up for this. I'm supposed to be back home. <laughs> yeah, you can't put your two week notice in. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about coming home from the deployment when you finally got to come home. What was that experience like? Oh my gosh. You know, when that land, then when that plane was pulling into um, Folk Field in Wisconsin, which is on the western side of Wisconsin, I forgot how blue the sky could be and how green the grass was and how the, even the smell of vegetation. And it, that, was, that was one of the most surreal moments of my life. And then we step out of the plane and the fam our family and friends were all waiting there with signs and you could hear the roar of the crowd as we walked off the plane. <laughs> we had to line up in alphabetical order on the plane before we got off. So it was just like one more, like one more military thing that we had to do before we could finally see our friends and family. And it just kind of fit the bill, I guess. But we got down and and yeah, it was it was just awesome. And then we got to Fort McCoy and we were told from everybody, don't tell, don't tell this the the Sykes what you saw or what you did and don't act like it was a big deal because they're going to make you stay. And after being gone for so long, we all lied our way through it. Do you see a dead body? Oh yeah, but it was really far away. Didn't really make a difference. Or, you know, how close were you to war? Well, not that close. You know, we heard bombings once in a while. So <laughs> yeah. So then we finally got home and, and the loud noises and stuff bothered me, but I didn't really feel like I had a whole lot of post-traumatic stress. It wasn't until a year after I got home that I went to sergeant school and I was in a simulated war scenario with Miles Gear, which is kind of like laser tag. And we were doing a ruck march and I just started losing it because there was simulated grenades going off, which reminded me of IEDs. And I started hyperventilating and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't walk anymore. And I kept telling myself, you're okay you're fine. Like, knock it off. You're, just, you're at home. You're in Wisconsin. And um, finally, I just I just dropped my knees and I couldn't go on. And um, thank God, uh, Carly Garcia, one of my really good girlfriends from war was there. And so I called her over. But in the meantime, other people were trying to help me and they thought I was suffering from heat strokes. So they wanted to take my clothes off. And I was like, no, this is nothing compared to Big Dad. Like, knock it off. So I sat for a few hours and chilled out and got back into sergeant school and ended up finishing um, one of the top in my class. And then it was thereafter, I was like, I couldn't get out of that funk. I couldn't stop having breakdowns and panic attacks. And, and I was probably a month or so after I got back from sergeant school, I was in my car driving to a practicum because I was becoming a, a physical education teacher that um, I could not drive because I was crying so hard. And I had to call my older brother who was also in Iraq when I was there. And then I said, you got to take me to the VA, dude, I can't go on. And so he drove a few miles to where I was parked and he took me to the VA and I got the help that I needed. I think it's really important that you mentioned, like, I knew where I was, because that's something that like, I know where I am, I know that I'm, but I still can't control how my body's yeah. reacting. And I think sometimes when you hear things about like PTSD or whatever, you think like, people say stuff like, oh, well, you just go back to this place. And it's like, you do, but you still know where you are. Mm -hmm. And it's such a weird feeling. And when I came home, they asked me all the questions. And I just I think I, I didn't, I did tell someone because I walked through a big open field and I thought it was a minefield and I told the airman 
And then she said, you need to tell the doctor that and looked really serious. And I was like, well, I'm not going to tell the doctor that. And she didn't tell the doctor that. And I was like, I don't feel like this is the right system. Like I was brave enough to tell one person that story and it was a female. And then the doctor came in and I didn't want to say it again. So, and he didn't ask me, he just asked me like very vague questions. And and the military system is, it's really easy to navigate around. And even when you're brave enough to speak up, if you don't tell the right person, they're not going to tell anyone. They're just going to be like, you need to tell the next person. Like, right. Right. And there's people that I was deployed with who were in the same situations I was and they don't suffer from post-traumatic stress. So you just never really know. Or it took them a while to, for it to happen, you know. Yeah. Everybody's different. So you stayed in the Army for a few years after you got home. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, your enlistment was originally six years. And yep. then you stayed eight. Is that right? Well, it's six plus two. So it's six years of, of, of active drilling. And then, so that was in 07 um, when I officially got out. And then um, two years of inactive ready reserve. So it's kind of like if there, if if something really bad happened and they needed a lot of troops, they could still call me up out of the blue. Um, but I didn't have my uniforms. I didn't have anything military related anymore. Or I still have my uniforms, I guess, because those were mine. But, you know, I didn't have like my tactical gear or anything anymore. And then in 09, I got my, my honorable discharge. So... Yeah. So you did. Yeah, but drilling wasn't easy after I started suffering post traumatic stress or being around guns or, you know, like it was just, it was really, really hard. Yeah. So, how many years was it that you were doing drilling? Like three, three, three years approximately? Yeah. So, we got back in 04. And then I didn't have post traumatic stress until the fall of 05. So, it was like another year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And then actually our company got deployed in 07 in the, I think the fall of 07 or like shortly after I got out. So I was really lucky that I didn't get stop lost, which is when you get extended tour of service. So your unit deployed right after back to Iraq right after you got out. Yeah, they went back and it was substantially different deployment the second time around, uh, nearly as scary and and they lived in much better housing than than we did. So, and the, and their jobs were actually outlined and not just go train the Iraqi police officers and see what you can do to make it happen. Yeah, I'm sure a lot changed. That's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. So you decided. So you did your six year enlistment and then the two. Yep. In um, active reserves, and then you kind of you finished school, and what did you do? <laughs> yeah. So I graduated in '06. You know, after being deployed for or being gone for a year and a half from school, it really, I graduated within four and a half years of actually attending the university as a physical education teacher. And then I decided to have what I called the year of Laura. And I traveled all over the world. I went to Europe and then I went to Central America and uh, road trips throughout the United States. And then while I was in England traveling, I actually applied for a teaching job over there and don't even remember what I put on the application, but they called me a few weeks after that when I was back in the States and offered me a position. So a month later, I moved back to, or I moved to England and taught in England and um, ended up reconnecting with an old boyfriend who was going to school in Fargo. He was playing for the football team at NDSU. And so I moved from England to Fargo to be with him. And was there for a year and a half and actually worked with people with special needs. I was an activities director as opposed to doing my teaching gig. Well, I didn't love Fargo and I didn't have a lot of support or friends there. And the boyfriend that I had um, at the time, he really liked to hunt. So he was gone a lot and I just didn't have an opportunity to 
build up my social connection. So I moved back to Madison and he came with me and I got a teaching gig in Madison and then proceeded to you to get two master's degrees, one in experiential education and one in educational leadership. And so then that brought me into the role of dean of students at a high school in Madison. And then um, I was also the next year in charge of a whole bunch of new initiatives. And then the year after that, I moved back to my hometown, uh, two hours north and became an assistant principal at the middle school which is very different than the high school. And then uh, a year and a half into that, I got the head principal role. So that's where I'm at right now. And did that boyfriend tell my husband or no? No, <laughs> no we, were to, we were together for about four years. And then a year after him and I had broken up, I met my husband. Um, so my husband and I got married in 2012. And now we've got three kids. And yeah, it's amazing. Came back to Eng from England and then... <laughs> yeah. Did we miss anything or was there something from your military experience that you wanted to talk about? Hmm. You know, I just, everybody's unique and not only what their deployment looks like, uh, even if you're in the same squad. I mean, my, I had just vastly different experiences because at one point my team leader left and went to become a squad leader. And and even the gunner would stay home once in a while or he would gun a different vehicle and I would, you know, go and escort a different vehicle. So, you know, it's it's very different for every single person that goes over there and no two stories are alike. And and I just really hope that as soldiers return, we can accept them for where they're at in life, regardless if they have post-traumatic stress or not, or moral injury, or again, whatever you want to call it. And just be aware of how our actions can impact veterans. For example, fireworks during the 4th of July or, you know, just shooting guns at our house because it's fun, even though a veteran lives next door, because those can be pretty scary things when we get back. Yeah. And just really taking them for their word and where they're at, because nobody would lie about that kind of experience or the ramifications of, of what happened at war. Yeah. Being open to listen, being willing to make changes or change the way you do things to think about what other people are feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my last question is, what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? You know, it's interesting that you asked this question because as a high school teacher, I would give my presentation my and I would share my experience about Iraq all the time to my students. And it's not to highlight, you know, the good or the bad or the ugly or to persuade people. It's 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 literally a sequential order of what happened and just to give people some insight because since we're not in the draft war, I feel like the gap between civilian and military is so huge. At any rate, I get asked a lot, well, would you recommend war? And I always say, that's up to you as an individual. I can tell you right now that it wasn't for me. I didn't like being told what to do by people who sometimes were a little bit less intelligent or, you know, I didn't like being told what to do when I knew it wasn't the best situation. I didn't mind wearing the uniform. You know, it was nice not to have to pick out your clothes every day. <laughs> and I loved how in shape I was. And, and, you know, a lot about the military was really cool. But it's not for everybody. And I know that I'm much happier as a civilian than I was when I was in the military. And so you have to look inside of you and think about where you're at as, as, um, as your own individual person and take that for, for if you should join or not. I can't recommend it. I can't say don't do it because that's not, that's not my place. It's just like any job. Being a teacher is really hard. Being a principal is really hard. And it's not for everybody. But you can make a huge impact on, on hundreds of people's lives 
And then you don't know when that impact stops because they might impact somebody else the same way you impacted them. And so um, it's just each their own and, and whatever you need to do, you need to do. Yeah, it could be dangerous and you could be risking your life and you have to ask yourself if that's something you're willing to do. And knowing that you can't just get out of it flippantly like you can with some other jobs out there. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think that's really important. And it's the reality of what the military is. There can be some good things, but there's also a lot of sacrifice and mm-hmm. what's required. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I cannot imagine being in it with, with a family and being uprooted from my own children, you know, not to, or under my own free will. I just can't even fathom that. But I wasn't a parent when I went. I wasn't with anybody when I went. So I, it was great because I, I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do at that point in my life. Yeah. I, that was the main driving factor why I got out of the Air Force because I didn't want to deploy and leave my son behind mm-hmm. I was married during my deployment but to have to leave behind my son I was like I just couldn't I just couldn't do it and if you mm-hmm. can't do something then you should get out of the military so mm-hmm. that was, that's my big like if you don't want to do something and something's preventing you from being 100% in then you should then it's your time to leave so that's exactly. why yeah Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your experience. I think I haven't I haven't talked a lot about PTSD with my guests. I've done it for other people's podcasts, and so mm. it was interesting to be on the interviewee side, um, asking the questions and not be the one interviewed. So hopefully, hopefully, I didn't push you too hard. And no. um, really appreciate you being so open and to share your experience and. You can look in the show notes and check out her book, Sirens, How to Be Standing Up. And thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It meant a lot. And I'm an open book, so I don't mind talking about anything that happened. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.